Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to The Power Test, the political podcast that asks if it really is all over for the Tories and what Labour needs to do to win power and change Britain for the better. I'm Aisha Hazarika. And I'm Sam Friedman. And today we turn to devolution. Do we need more of it? Does it actually work? Will a Labour government really be prepared to hand away power? And joining us today, we have the Mayor of Liverpool City Region, Steve Rotherham, Liz Lloyd, who is Nicola Sturgeon's Chief of Staff and Strategic Advisor, and Labour's Georgia Gould, who is the Leader of Camden Council and Chair of London Councils. So before we get to the main topic of today's discussion, I have to ask you, Aisha, because uh, you're actually like famous and important, unlike me. You were at the society wedding, the political wedding of the year uh, at the weekend. You were you were at the Osborne wedding that got a lot of attention, right? I was there. It got a lot of uh, attention, sadly for kind of the wrong uh, reasons. But yes, I was there. You said I. You are part of the Metropolitan Liberal Elite because you uh, were on that. Li- Do you think I'm on that list now? Yeah, you definitely. If you were at that wedding, you're definitely on the <laughs> Metropolitan Liberal Elite. Did they have a nice buffet? That's why I want to know. Oh, the the, the, <laughs> the food was very good. Uh, the drinks were very very good. The venue was very good, and the dancing was very good as well. Um. So everyone's going to think I'm some sort of right-wing monster, but actually it was a kind of like a centrist dad and mum and spinster gathering, actually. There were people represented from across the political mm. spectrum, from Ed Balls and Yvette Cooper to Danny Alexander and mm. Sajid Javid. I actually sat next to Michael Gove, your old boss. Yeah, it's like a like a, co- a new coalition of, of centrism. Basically, it was a new party. It was a new <laughs> party. Um, I was not going to give too much away, although mainly because I can't remember quite a lot of it. <laughs> As I said, the drinks... It was, were, it was that good a party. Okay. The drinks were very, very good. But there was a moment when I did think we were going to have to call Avon and Somerset 999 ambulance services because I thought a lot of older gentlemen were not going to make it through uh, the dance floor when the strains of Things Can Only Get Better came oh, on. And I just looked around the dance floor and there was a lot of enthusiastic <laughs> dancing right across the political <laughs> spectrum. And I thought, some of these chaps aren't going to make it. <laughs> I think on that image, we might we might leave uh, George Osborne's wedding and talk a bit about our main topic of conversation today, which is devolution. You know, I can imagine for a lot of listeners, they're thinking, oh, that sounds a bit a bit dull. But actually, devolution is critical and it's come up so often in our programmes over the course of this series because it affects every area. You know, we have an economy that is very, very London centric, which is a huge problem with it. You know, our public services are hugely centralised compared to other countries. So it's actually kind of at the heart of what Labour are talking about across lots of different areas at the moment. And I would argue it's been there's been a great political consensus around this for, for quite some time. You know, arguably one of the best slogans that Boris Johnson came up with on the steps of Downing Street was the concept of levelling up, which was a very neat way of, of talking about devolution. And there was a time when the Conservatives really wanted to make this their kind of central plank of, of a new Boris Johnson government, this new coalition that they had built. And had they managed to do that, I think that would have been a really, really smart thing for them to do. But obviously they didn't. It's been a complete sort of spectacular 
failure. But I think what's so interesting about it is devolution sounds really boring to most people. But as you say, it's it's actually how you get things done. It's not just the um, the the boring kind of bits of regional tiers and, and, and lots of different kind of bodies. It's actually how do you get the resources to the areas of the country that really, really need it? And so many people have been saying for such a long time, the southeast and London is overheating. You know, how do we try and kind of spread wealth and opportunity across the rest of the country? Not just because it's the right thing to do, but we actually need it for growth in this country. It feels like we've gone backwards on it. And I think people don't really realise like how big an issue it is in terms of the economy. Our cities outside of London underperform hugely compared to sort of smaller cities in European countries. There's this one study that if they sort of had the same level of economic performance as the smallest sort of second, third, fourth cities in Germany, we could be sort of having fifty billion pounds a year more growth. It's sort of a fundamental issue for our economy. And the reason is that in Germany regions have a lot of independence and a lot of power to make economic decisions. They can raise their own taxes, they can decide what to prioritize, spend money on, transport and so on. Whereas here all the decisions, or so many of the decisions are made in Westminster. And we talk about productivity a lot. Labour talk a lot about growth. You, It's very hard to see a way of really good meeting their very ambitious targets without thinking about how do we get our cities operating at a much more powerful level. Absolutely. And one of the things that um, a lot of the business community are saying, you know, now the world has opened up post-pandemic, when you're trying to get people to do inward investing in Britain, the lack of connectivity, particularly in areas outside the southeast, that is a massive barrier to people wanting to come and invest here, alongside other things like skills. It is genuinely holding the country back from an economic point of view. So let's have a look at what the different parties are saying about it. We had the government's 2022 levelling up white paper, which committed to expanding devolution to any part of England that wanted it by 2030. And then Labour have done this thing, which is quite interesting. So they commissioned Gordon Brown to do this report. I was on this report. And that has been the sort of foundation for, for what they see, Sam, as quite an ambitious rolling out of, of devolution. Mm, they they do, though they've been, they, they talk a lot about how it's ambitious. They haven't given a huge amount of detail. I mean, one question I wanted to ask you as you were on that Gordon Brown group is, do you actually think Labour have internalised it or do you just think they're being a bit polite to you all and saying, yes, that was a nice report, thank you? Do, do you think they're going to actually do the stuff in there? What, what gave me a bit more confidence is that because the leader's office were heavily involved, when they did sign off the final document, it, it wasn't just like, OK, we're signing this off, we're going to sort of sneak it out and nothing will be done. Keir Starmer was with Gordon Brown for a series of, of launches across the country, including in Scotland, which is a really important part of the conversation. They're hoping to use that as a foundation for a very cute title of a new bill they want to put in place called the Take Back Control Bill. Very clever. Very clever. Obviously a play on that. Very witty. A play on the uh, Take Back Control Brexit and saying actually this is going to be the thing, this is be the the legislative vehicle by which we will start giving away this power. But you're right, like the devil is going to be in the detail. And look, the Gordon Brown report had a lot of good stuff in it, but it didn't go as far as saying fiscal devolution, tax devolution. It kind of hinted that that would be a preferred direction of of travel. It also contained, remember, other things about cleaning up politics, about substantial reform, abolition of the House of Lords. So it was kind of like a package. But yeah, I mean, I hope it's not just going to get kicked into the long grass. But let's be honest, 
can you really see a world where Rachel Reeves and Pat McFadden go, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give you power over taxes? I just can't see that. Well, we will talk to our guests about it today. Before we get into the chat with them, I did just want to, because because local government is, I think, quite an arcane topic for a lot of people and something that you know, isn't discussed much in, in national media. It's I think there's, it's worth sort of drawing out the distinction between the different bits of local government, because we're going to be talking today to uh, Steve Rotherham, Mayor of Liverpool. Liverpool's a combined authority. These are quite new inventions, George Osborne's sort of invention, actually. Um, we talked about it a lot at the wedding. Yeah, combined authorities was the main topic of conversation, uh, where you sort of draw together a group of local authorities that are in an economic region, so 10 local authorities around Greater Manchester or, or a group of local authorities around Liverpool and you create an elected mayor of that group and give them some powers that don't sit either with the local authority or with national governments around economic regeneration of their of their area. But you still also have local authorities underneath. And we also have Georgia Gould uh, as a guest who's political leader of a local authority. And there's even more complication under that, but I won't get into that at this stage. But local government is very complicated and is very messy. And that's one of the uh, difficulties in talking about it. So it's worth doing a little bit of explainer up front. Joining us to discuss what a future government should do on devolution, we have Labour's Steve Rotherham, who was elected Mayor of Liverpool City Region in 2017 and again in 2021. Steve, hello. Hi, uh, sorry about any of the technical problems. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll get that sorted with levelling up, Steve. <laughs> Uh, we have Liz Lloyd, who is Nicola Sturgeon's Chief of Staff and then Strategic Advisor from 2015 until she stood down earlier this year. Hello, Liz. Hello, how are you? And we have Labour's Georgia Gould, who has been Leader of Camden Council since 2017 and she's also Chair of London Councils. Hello, Georgia. Hello. So we're going to start by asking you for a very quick response, uh, which we're then going to get into the detail. But do you think at the moment Labour are passing the power test uh, when it comes to devolution? Are they ready for power when it comes to devolution? Um, I will go to Steve first. I think ready and actually the country's desperate for us to be ready, isn't it, for power? Because we need to see the back of the current government as soon as we possibly can. And I'm sure we'll go into some of the detail, but... It gives me confidence when I hear some of the latest announcements and certainly on uh, devolution to the regions. Liz? I think when it comes to Scotland and probably Wales, no, they're not. Um, And I think they've got a long way to go. Georgia? I I mean, I think they are ready and they're setting out probably the boldest and biggest vision on devolution that we've seen from a government. So I think the vision is there and the right conversations are being had around the detail. So we're going to start with Scotland and then we're going to get to sort of England devolution uh, in a bit. But we're going to start with Liz. Um, Scottish politics has been quite quiet recently. Um, What's your sort of take on uh, on the last few months and sort of looking ahead to the election? Um, I think, well, I think the safest thing to say is it's been an unexpected few months, Um, (laughs) slightly turbulent for all involved. It's not quite possible to see how it's going to play out yet for the election. Hamza Youssef is the new first minister's head as good a start as it's possible to have with the circumstances that he's faced, but he hasn't yet been able to set out his agenda for the Westminster election or for the next three years of a Hollywood government. I think that should come after the summer. And then I think we'll really see how he and Stephen Flynn will face off to Keir Starmer and Anna Sawar as you get into the election. And how worried do you think the SNP is about the sort of rise of Keir Starmer, these very solid poll leads, and the fact that 
Anasawa is definitely a better leader in Scotland than there has been for for a long, long time. I think you and I can both agree on on that, Liz. How worried are the SNP? I can agree Anas is an improvement. I think he's still got some uh, room to improve further. Labour obviously got some strong poll leads across the whole of the UK, but they are still behind. It is tight, but they are still polling behind in Scotland. The SNP, I mean, all the time that I was there, and I would think now they're never complacent about elections. Even when, you know, the SNP has been riding high, our tendency is to think that we're going to lose and fight from that position. So there will be, I think, a very hard fight. And the SNP's got form in coming back from behind on this. I think what's missing for Labour is where there might be a narrative in England about why you would vote Labour. There's not one in Scotland that is different to something that the SNP can offer. What about getting the Tories out? But both parties can offer that in Scotland. You vote you SNP can't get in the Scotland, Tories out you vote in, Labour in Scotland. But you can't get result. the Tories out in Westminster. You can't because the SNP is not about to put the Tories into government. So it doesn't actually, if you vote Labour in Scotland, you're not getting a different position to if you vote Tory in Scotland. Sorry to what you're getting if you vote SNP in Scotland. But what you're getting if you vote SNP in Scotland is, I would think, and I think this will be part of what they campaign on, pressure to hold Labour to promises that they will make to hopefully, as we'll get to, improved devolution promises that they will make. And perhaps to less of the softening, if you like, of some of the Labour Party's positions. What do you think would happen if we had a minority Labour government uh, with the SNP being sort of the next biggest party? As you said, they wouldn't sort of put the Tories back in power. What what would they do? How would they try and have a relationship with the Labour Party? What would that look like? I mean, we've got experience in this. The SNP governed as a minority government for four years and is a minority now, but working with the Greens to form a majority. We, I think, have the knowledge and experience to do it on case-by-case negotiation. That is how minority government works. You don't have to sign up to, we will vote for everything. That wouldn't be right. And you also have to work it out against what in Westminster is, what is an English issue? What is a UK-wide issue? Where do Scotland's interests come into play? But the approach that I would expect them to take in that situation is to negotiate case-by-case and to use their power in voting numbers to push Labour, if you like, further towards the SNP's agenda. So where the SNP is a bit more progressive, a bit more liberal, a bit more, say, pro-European or pro-migration, you might find that the SNP is using its voting power in a minority Labour situation to get that and to increase perhaps a transfer of power as part of that. And what about the the sort of crunch question about a second referendum? If there is a Labour government, let's say the it's not a majority Labour government, but it's a minority Labour government. Although the polls right now, Sam is very confident that it's going to be a landslide. We'll come <laughs> on to that later. <laughs> um, do you think that Hamza Yusuf could ever sort of blow the whole thing up and say, right, unless you do this, we're not going to vote with you? That could force a, a you know the whole thing come tumbling down as it has done in the past, all hinging on a second referendum. I'd be surprised if that's where it ends up, but I'd be surprised if that's where it ends up because I'd be surprised if Labour would let that happen. When you have power, Labour won't want to lose it. So it's in Labour's interest to do something which I see Welsh Labour do quite often, which is this sort of democratic shrug about the concept of a referendum and to stop being quite so opposed to the idea that people might have different views about the constitutional future and to find a way to accommodate that. So do you think Mark Drakeford has done a better job in Labour in Wales than Scottish Labour have done. Absolutely. I'm kind of interested in, in, in sort of where devolution could go next. If we go back to 97, the big sort of devolution thing that New Labour did was around Scotland-Wales, creating the, the model that we have now. 
Do you think that that decision to devolve actually kicked off a shift towards wanting independence? Presumably it helped the SNP quite a lot, that decision. So it's going to make Labour nervous to go further, given what happened last time they did it. Um, it certainly created the platform where that argument could be had and where the sort of poacity of the powers that were in the Scotland Act was they were bold, where they fail, where they don't go far enough. It shows those up. You have a platform where you are trying to do something as a government and you can't quite go as far as is required to solve the problem. And you have to go to Westminster to see if they'll agree. They won't. And you're stuck. And so the more people see that, the more people see, well, actually, maybe it's better if we have full responsibility here. And that leads people to the independence track. I can see why Labour might be nervous, but I think the counter is if they don't do something, then that spotlight on the lack of powers in Scotland, the lack of ability to solve the problems and that desire for independence will grow. So in a sense, it's not in my interest to argue that Labour should do more devolution, but I'm a supporter of the Scottish Parliament having the powers as far as it can go until the point where we get independence. So what? what obviously, you have a slight conflict of interest here, but yeah. what would you be advising them to do on devolution, assuming they don't want to go down the route of a second referendum, they don't want to go down an independence route, what what could they offer to make the Scottish Parliament more more effective? I think, and this is where I don't think Labour is yet passing the test, because I think part of the problem is the way you phrase that question. Mm. What could they offer? Mm. The ask should actually be coming the other way around. Devolution now should be at a point where you have a parliament and a government in Scotland that is able to say, to achieve these outcomes, we need these powers or we need these decisions. And if you're not prepared to make them, transfer the powers to do that. And that, I think, would generate what Labour haven't generated yet, which is quite a specific list of things that are holding the Scottish economy back or holding parts of Scottish society back and which could make a real difference. And I think, you know, we've had the Gordon Brown Commission. That doesn't really include that. It doesn't include meaningful devolution of additional powers. And it doesn't put Scotland in the place of being the one that sets out what powers are required. It's very much a we are giving you what Westminster is prepared to give away rather than we recognise that you can do something with these powers that would be beneficial to you and we're going to transfer the power so you can do that. I mean, there's one of the, because um, I was part of the, the Gordon Brown Commission, and I think you make a, you make a fair point, and we will be speaking to our, our other contributors as well about how much power Labour is prepared to give away from the centre, particularly around things like tax. But there was also, when we spoke to lots of people part of the commission, and obviously, you know, friends and colleagues and, and, and people I speak to in Scotland, they say that, you know, for all of the SNPs, the thirst for independence. Scotland is an incredibly centralised country and actually one of the big criticisms of the SNP is that they were not prepared to give powers away, for example, to the highlands and, and islands and you know big problems with lots of infrastructure and ferries and all of that stuff. Do you think the SNP should have done and should do more on giving power away itself? I mean, I am a bit of a proponent, not necessarily, and I'll get stick for this, but not necessarily of empowering local government, but of empowering communities. So at one point as a special advisor, I took through a community empowerment bill, which gives communities power to have more control over their situation, over their economy. I think there are arguments for more powers to be devolved to local authorities or for some sort of regional setups in Scotland. But I don't think there's been a demonstration yet of how much difference they would make. When the SP first came in, we removed all ring fencing on local government and did a deal with local government that we won't ring fence, but you will meet these certain commitments that we've set out nationally. Over time, local government stopped meeting those commitments and then ring fencing reappeared. So there was an attempt to empower. And at the moment, there are attempts to empower on tax. 
So local authorities are getting taxation powers over Airbnbs, over transport, over additional second dwellings, you know, extra, if you've got an empty house, you get to boost the council tax to 200, 300%. So there is a tax empowerment going on and Humza Yusuf's just done a deal with local government, which is intended to say, we will set key goals, you will deliver them and try and find a better way forward, a more stable financial agreement between the two. But that requires partnership on both sides. And I mean, sitting in the government position, it's probably quite easy for me to say that I didn't always see local government fulfil their side of the bargain. They would say the same about me. Notwithstanding the the problems of, of the last you know year, six months, Nicola Sturgeon resigning, police investigations, camper vans, Taggart-style tents outside houses, you probably lived through it all, Liz. The SNP became a phenomenally successful political project in Scotland. In our lifetimes, we've witnessed this transformation. What do you think Scottish Labour could learn from the SNP? I think I don't particularly want to give them tips, but I think (laughs) both Scottish Labour and UK Labour, and I know people will say, well, we know what the Labour Party stands for. I don't think people in Scotland genuinely do. I don't think people know what would be different, what the change that Labour are proposing would be, other than we'll have a bit more, we'll have a bit less of this and a bit more of that. There's no big structural approach. There's no grand vision. And I think the one thing that we were able to do, which was what people were drawn to, is as well as taking account of where the public want you to be, is also to lead, is to set out a vision of what your country, what your future should look like and drive people to that. And that's where I think Labour are missing, both UK-wide and in Scotland, to be fair. I think the other thing that Annas and the Scottish Labour really need to learn to do, as we're talking about devolution, is to stand up for the Scottish Parliament, is to stand up for the powers that we have. I mean, the first thing that a Labour government should do is undo the damage that's been done for the last four or five years by the Tories to the devolution settlement. And Labour in Scotland tend to say, oh, well, it's just a fight between the SNP and the Tories. But the same thing happens in Wales and Labour in Wales say, no, this is an attack on devolution. So I think Anas should probably find a way to jump off that fence and to actively start to say that they support the Scottish Parliament. They want it to have the powers that it already should have that have been taken away and then to engage properly about what more there should be. I'm going to bring in our our English guests. Steve, you've been listening to that um, conversation about Scotland. How much did devolution in Scotland and Wales, uh, how much has that sort of affected your thinking about how to uh, operate as a mayor within a combined authority in England? Well, the differential between what's happening in Scotland and ourselves is that there is some proper devolution in Scotland whilst ours is more decentralisation. So the Scottish government take decisions on behalf of the people there and they have some autonomy on how they distribute the funding. And in our area, we basically get a pot of money for transport or skills or whichever, which we have to spend on those individual um, topic areas. So it's a very different model. It's uh, it's something that I'm, I'm fairly envious of, in all honesty. And despite the fact that I'm sure that there will be pushback um, to our guest. I wouldn't mind some Barna consequentials for the Liverpool City region and we'd see a massive uplift. So given that you're sort of frustrated by the lack of powers that you have at the moment under the current deal, what are you hoping for from a a Labour government? Well, there's the potential, isn't there, for the greatest transfer of power away from Westminster to the regions in British political history. So that's the size of the prize that we have in front of us. 
we genuinely need to do something to rebalance the, the whole of the country. And we live in the most politically centralised democracy in the OECD, yet we have the most unbalanced geographically economy in the whole of Europe. And we need to, to take lessons from people who are much more successful at this than ourselves. And look, I hope that Scotland becomes a powerhouse. It's great if it does. Uh, and I'm not jealous of London for, for what they do. But I want to have some of the opportunity that those two places have got. And I look at the German model, for instance, and a, a federal structure there has resulted in you know manufacturing in Munich or, or in um, financial services in Frankfurt and what, what's happening with the docks around Hamburg and some fantastic things there. Well, th- that's proper devolution and devolution in action works because what you have are the ability and the powers to shape your own destiny. So we don't all have to compete for the exact same things, but we can look at what the assets in a specific area are and then try to see if we can maximise what the potential of that area might be. And Steve, just spell out for our listeners, many of whom will be you know, familiar with the concept of levelling up and, and wanting more devolution, but just spell out in really clear terms, what does that power giveaway look like? Is it giving the mayors tax raising abilities? Is it fiscal? What does it look like? There's the start of this, isn't it, with the trailblazer deals in Greater Manchester and the West Midlands. Uh, and they basically negotiated with the different departments to take some of those responsibilities and, of course, the accountability that comes with that. But it will be for those two areas to decide on where they spend and what the priorities of spend are, whereas ours is, is not like that at all. You know, we, Despite the fact that we do get some significant pots of funding, I can't via between those different things where there's proper devolution would allow me to do that. They're deciding down there what's in the best interests of somewhere like us. And they couldn't point to Kirby or West Kirby, which are two completely different places in, in our area, and he couldn't point to them on a map. So how are they going to decide what's best for those individual areas? Georgia, I wanted to, to bring you in. Um, you lead a local authority. A lot of discussion around devolution in England relates at the moment to combined authorities, to mayors. Both the Conservatives and, and Labour have talked a lot about that as being a lever for sort of pushing down powers. Is there any sort of tension between local authorities and, and combined authorities in what we mean by devolution and decentralisation? I don't think there has to be. I mean, I wholeheartedly agree with with the vision that Steve set out. And I think that, that local authorities still play an enormous delivery role. So if a economic devolution is going to work, we're going to need the kind of strategic leadership of the um, regional authorities. But then local authorities will need to have the delivery around employment support, skills, education, so many different areas where we will we will be the ones that are, are actually delivering it. So I think that to really work, there needs to not just be a devolution of powers, but a new partnership between central, regional and local government. And I think the missions feel like a real opportunity to do that, where we have teams actually sit across our, our different levels with, with one strategic objective. 
How quickly could you move to that? Because one of the things about local government reform over a very, very long time is it tends to be very messy and very slow and very bespoke. You know, look at what the Tories have done. They have devolved a bit of power out to combined authorities, but in a, in a really kind of bitty way. So lots of, country don't, lots of parts of the country don't have that. There's still lots of parts of the country that have multiple tiers with district councils as well as local authorities. Yeah, you can sort of imagine the audience's eyes glazing over at this point. Is there a sort of big bang you could do to sort of sort all this out? Or is it just something that's going to take a long time and going to be very slow and messy? If you were starting from scratch, you absolutely would not organise our system how it is. But I, I think it would be a real mistake to spend like the first two years of a government working to massively reorganise local government, although I think you do need some kind of regional tier everywhere. The problem with the current approach is the government have done a slow deal-making approach rather than actually looking at what real powers we can get out to councils and communities as quickly as possible. Mm. So really simple things around land or licensing, we still have to uh, go up centrally, land assembly, the ability to influence the design of high streets, greater borrowing powers around housing delivery. You could give us a whole suite of powers that could actually get us started on mm. on um, getting people into work, uh, building more homes, the things that really matter while you, you know, take some more time to produce a system that, that really delivers over the long term. And what about when there are political conflicts between what the the mayor might want to do, indeed what local council leaders want to do and the kind of raw politics of the situation. I'm thinking of the ULES right now where, you know, we have this Uxbridge uh, by-election on the horizon. Sadiq Khan obviously very keen to press on with this. We've got the local candidate, um, Danny uh, Beale, saying, actually, no, I don't think this is good. We've had a couple of other kind of local Labour MPs out in that kind of donut area saying, you know, we're really worried about this. How does devolution work from that point of view when you have got genuine sort of clashes of, of political views? Well, I think the devolution is really clear to the Mayor of London. He is responsible for transport policy in in the city and he's got a clear mandate for that and he's responding to a challenge that we have in the city. Over 4,000 people each year uh, die early because of poor air quality and he's putting in a policy to tackle that. Uh, but I also think we can work through those political differences. So you said I chair London councils, probably no one knows what that is, but it is a collection of a 33 boroughs, including the city in London, all different perspectives, <laughs> independents, uh, conservatives, Liberal Democrats, Labour. And with, there's a whole host of areas that we have come together around the climate crisis, around supporting refugees. We have really clear policy and we've come together with the GLA and that's without any mandate or push for us to do it. So I think it is really possible for for different levels and regions to collaborate together where there is a, a real common purpose. And for me, any kind of long-term devolution settlement would need a long-term industrial strategy. They have a 10-year industrial strategy in Germany, but they have four times the amount of autonomous powers at a local regional level than we do. So you need both. And do you support the ULEs yes. expansion? Yeah. Steve, on this sort of point about the tension between central Labour and people in, in devolved roles, there's clearly been some tension but already between Starmer's office and the mayor's bit of tension with Andy Burnham, Sadiq Khan. We have had this sort of fight up in the northeast over Jamie Driscoll. Do, do you get a sense that they're learning from those things or are you worried that this is something that might continue in, in government? Well, you don't get devolution and then everybody all pulls 100% in the same direction. You're always going to get those people who will have different views. And by the way, that's healthy, isn't it, for a democracy? 
that people do have different views. So for me in our area, it's been good and bad to have had six local authority leaders, police and crime commissioner, and the Metro Mayor all from the same party. But of course, just because we're all from that same political perspective, it doesn't mean that we agree on absolutely everything. So the relationships that people have with the centre will always be predicated on the fact that you want those people to do more for your area. We'll have to see how that goes. But I mean, and, and Steve, I, I think what's happening so far is showing that at least the party is serious about trying to break some of that down. How does it make you feel when you do see Andy Byrne in particularly quite often getting a bit slapped down in, in the media from people from the leader's office saying he's getting too big for his boots and, you know, he's not, you know, he needs to sort of know his place. I mean, that's not great in terms of the general vibe about we respect everybody, particularly in local government. Well, I don't think anyone's getting too big for the boots. In, in fact, quite the opposite. Uh, I think the boots uh, need to be bigger. And what we need are more powers, more resources, more devolution. I, I think we are probably the one of the best ways in which Labour can easily explain what it would do in power, because we're doing lots of those things now. Even with limited devolution, we're doing and delivering wonderful things in all of our areas. The thing about personalities will always be an issue, won't it? But at the end of the day, if we get a Labour government, every single one of us will be 100% supportive of the leader, and we wish Keir Starmer nothing but good luck in that task ahead. Can I just say something about London? Because I think I absolutely agree with everything Steve said and the, the over-centralisation of our country has led to you know, massive inequality uh, across regions, particularly in productivity. But I also think that that applies to London as well. My communities in Somerstown, some of the poorest in Europe, feel just as far away from power. And the Fabian report that came out shows that the kind of overheating of London is letting down our residents. So we now have one in 23 children in temporary accommodation. You know, the housing crisis is off the scale. And we don't have the levers in London local government or London regional government to be able to really tackle the inequalities in our place. So the failure of centralisation is failing London as, as well as the other regions. And so I think that's a really important point because there is this, sometimes there is this very lazy narrative that there's no poverty in London because there's a lot of affluence in London. That's absolutely not true. But look, both of you, what I think is really interesting, both the roles that you have are really at the coal face of a lot of big social problems that we're seeing, particularly around poverty. And there are some levers that government could pull that would make your lives significantly more easy and, and help you on the ground. For example, if you look at child poverty, you look at the policies around child benefit, there is this sort of argument at the moment about, you know, should Labour think about scrapping the two-child limit? That has been proven to have... I mean, Sam, you've got quite sort of strong views. I, mean, I think on, it's the worst social policy ever introduced by British government. So that's and and you've got strong views on that. Steve, is that the kind of policy, and George, I'll come to you next, is that the sort of policy that you would be hoping that an incoming Labour government would, would listen to you guys on? Definitely. And not just ourselves in, in sort of the tier that we're in, so that, that's the devolved authorities or combined authorities. Our local authorities have been hollowed out over 12 years of austerity, and they provide many of those frontline services that could assist 
We're trying to help people who are facing some of these terrible conditions. And we don't want a beg and bowl culture. So the way to do it really is to use those tiers to try and get money to the areas that need it most. Georgia, I mean, I think everyone here is sort of pretty pro-devolution, as am I, but I think my, my scepticism, I guess, comes from sort of watching governments in the past. I remember sort of 2009 listening to, to Tory uh, shadow cabinet ministers sort of talk about how, how they wanted to devolve power and they wanted to be a sort of slim government and didn't want to centralise. Once you're in government, the sort of temptation is always to, to hold on to power because you sort of want to be able to pull every lever that's available to you. What's going to stop that happening against this this time? What's going to mean that actually when they get in, they're going to really seriously look at the sort of things that you've been working on and that Steve's been asking for? I think the scale of the challenge we we face means that the, the case for change is just enormous. And I think we have a really strong and clear political leadership coming from Keir and Lisa and the whole shadow cabinet that this is the really the number one political priority for Labour to, to put power in the hands of, of communities. There will have to be change. We will have to change how the, the civil service works with, with local government. You'd want to put local government on a constitutional footing and make this something that, that can't be reversed and make it practical quickly to actually solve challenges. So my residents will say to me that you know, that going into a job centre is like, they feel like it's where hope goes to die and the experience mm. is so negative. Many councils are investing in alternative employment services. The waste in that is enormous. If we just put the resources into local authorities to be able to support people into work, mm. you could save so much money. So the, the opportunities are there. And I think what gives me a lot of hope is I feel that the Labour team are working with us as local government leaders at what that practical plan looks like. So we the, are the ready. The point you make about the civil service is a really interesting one because certainly my experience of being in the civil service and talking to people since is that there's, there's a very little understanding of what local government does and quite a lot of contempt, actually, a sort of lack of trust for what local government could do and what it could bring to the table. It's not just about politicians. There's also a sort of learned mistrust of local government across the whole of Whitehall. How do you change that culture? I think you need to see much more movement in and out. So movement from central government into local government and and vice versa. And I would start to set up joint teams to deal with urgent issues. So take, you know, the, the massive crisis we have of trying to, to support and, and house those seeking asylum in this country and the, the Home Office trying to organise that centrally and the... Um, I don't know how to put this politely. The, the, you don't need to be polite. The mess that they're making of it. Unpolite. And um, if we if we had a task force with local government, regional government, who are used to procuring accommodation and, and doing that kind of work, we could move further faster. So I think working alongside each other, understanding each other's challenges is how you break down those barriers. Now, Liz, you're, you're keen to come in. As the civil service point, I think, is quite important because if I think of a lot of the issues that have come up between in recent years, the Scottish government and the UK government, there was always a question we had to ask ourselves, is this ignorance or arrogance? Do they know we have the power for this before they try to take it away? Or do they just not know that actually it's devolved? And there were several occasions where it was ignorance. And clearly, there was also occasions where it was Tory arrogance. But you had to go through this process of do we need to educate some UK civil servants sitting in a department somewhere that this responsibility belongs to the Scottish Parliament, is for the Scottish people to determine and you cannot legislate on it or are you deliberately trying to take it away? And that you had to go through that process was ridiculous because the minute the word devolution would come up, there would be a referral to some constitutional lawyers and that would be the end of any open, engaging discussion about how a policy should be taken forward. 
There's been lots of to and fro with constitutional <laughs> lawyers recently with the Scotland Front. Now, another question I just wanted to put to, to, to you guys, which is, if Labour does win and the polls are looking pretty strong at the moment, they're going to inherit an incredibly difficult situation. Um, they have already been very clear that there is not going to be a lot of money. How concerned are you that despite all the, the goodwill, all the chat about devolution, the warm words about devolution, when a Labour government comes in, it could still be austerity, but like a new form, a kind of a Labour form of austerity because the money just isn't there and Labour has to be sensible with the finances. What would that do to you, Steve? How would you navigate that? Well, you can see it already in regard to trying to manage expectations. Look, it, it's not going to be all of a sudden um, 13, 14 years of a Tory government are behind us and then it's the land of milk and honey and, and there's going to be millions of pounds sloshing about in the system for every single one of us. So that's not what's going to happen. But what I'm hoping will happen, what I'm pushing Rachel Reeves for, is that there's some tweaks to the Green Book methodology that's used to distribute funding so that we can get social deprivation included and then we'll start to tackle some of those areas that for far too long have been left behind. And in that way, you're starting to give hope because in all honesty, if as a party we're not given hope, I don't know what before, and we need to be given hope that things will be better and there will be a brighter future for people. Just by the way, the, the Treasury Green Book, uh, it might just to explain to our listeners, is, is basically their rules about how they calculate uh, the value of investments. Um, I would happily do a whole show on the Treasury Green Book, but probably best not. Um, Georgia, just, you were going to come Yeah, in? add to what Steve said. I think one of the things that would make an enormous difference very, very quickly is just to have some stable long-term funding and the Labour Party have promised that and to end this kind of hunger games of bidding we calculate it could take up to £140,000 to apply to one of these bids and then more than likely you don't get it so the waste in the system is enormous and if we had that stable funding take something like retrofit decarbonising our buildings you know trillions talked about at COP we could start to leverage in private sector investment on some of these these big outcomes and I think the second thing is that we spend money much more efficiently. If you think about the billions that were wasted on test and trace nationally trying to create a new centralised system and when all the money had run out, they came to local government and we used our public health teams and our local relationships to, to do the job a lot better. And I think if we start to really invest in prevention and communities, you'll save money and that's those are the kind, kind of conversations. you still need money, right? And how do you keep hope up with a new Labour government when there's just not going to be that much money around? I think you can start to spend the money you have differently. And there are changes that government can make that don't even cost any money, you know, allowing us to have proper licensing schemes locally without uh, having to go up centrally. That generates revenue that we can invest in improving housing. It's kind of unlocking the capacity of, of local government and communities will quickly make a difference in, in the reality of people's lives. I just wanted to finish with one last question for Liz, really. You've been listening to this sort of conversation about English devolution. Uh, from your experience of, of Scotland, what, what do you see the sort of pitfalls and the risks here? Yeah, it's quite interesting. I'm originally from the north of England, so I'm kind of supportive of regional devolution in particular and local devolution. But where Steve, I get where Steve's coming from about you want the powers to make the change. I would caution against, I think, because we've seen this in Scotland, not under the SNP, but actually under Labour, I'd caution against thinking because you have the same parties in both places, it's going to be smooth. Labour introduced free personal care in Scotland. Labour in London withheld £30 million that was necessary to fund it because they didn't agree with the policy. It's not 
a panacea. It's useful. It's helpful. It can make a huge difference. But if you don't have people on both sides who are dealing with it pragmatically, then it won't make progress. And I worry that once the Labour Party are in, if they win, um, that Labour gets its hands on things, has priorities, and that this falls down the priority list, that wanting to deliver is secondary to what we can deliver, that that whole Rachel Reeves, we don't have any sort of cash to throw around, gets in the way of actually making structural change. And even just seeing things like, you know, you mentioned the two-child cap earlier, the rowback on that is appalling. It would help Scotland, it would help Liverpool, it would help London to remove Wales. that. Yeah, exactly. Everywhere would benefit from that. It's actually a spend to save. You would reduce the number of people in poverty, you'd improve outcomes, but you've got a central treasury mentality already in Rachel Reeves's team that says you cannot do it. And just on that, there are some people, don't shoot the messenger here, guys, I'm just, I'm just putting forward the argument. There are some people who say all of this talk of devolution is a bit of a cop because ultimately... You're the leader, you're Keir Starmer, you're running to be Prime Minister, you're Rachel Reeves to, to Liz's point, you, you've got your hands on all the, the financial levers. They're never really going to give all that power away and nor should they. There are some people that think, and this applies to Scotland as well, there's some people that go, actually, you shouldn't give too much devolution away. It becomes really messy, it becomes very uneven, sometimes there's even sort of corruption. You actually are best to have a really good team of people at the helm of everything, controlling all the levers. What do you say to those people, Steve? Well, I say to those people, look, there's corruption um, right away throughout politics. We need to, to tidy up politics full stop. And uh, if you wanted to see where... Uh, the propensity of that is it's in Westminster, not in the outskirts. So uh, tidy your, your own act up before you start throwing accusations, I, I'd say, to, to Whitehall and Westminster. The thing that you can do is to make the system fairer. So, for instance, when Leveling Up was um, first muted, it was supposed to be about those areas that needed it most. And what happened was, I think it was Javid's constituency. They got £187 per person. And an area in the Liverpool City region that the government had identified as being a priority, which is heightened, got no pounds, no pence. Now, we're not saying spend more money. We're saying spend it more fairly. And that's a way in which Labour could come in and transform British politics. Georgia. I mean, the centralised model has failed. It's it's failed on uh, regional inequality. It's failed on growth. And I think we need to try something different. And an investment in places around the country, uh, I think, will bring about transformative change. OK, well, thanks very much to our guests. That was a brilliant discussion. I'm just going to ask you one quick final question to, to just wrap us up. If you could do one thing, one policy change on devolution under a Labour government, what would you want to see? What would be the one one thing you'd want to see first? Unless you're not allowed to say a second referendum. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Liz, what would you say? Um, I actually think the first thing Labour should do is ask the Parliament in Scotland what powers it wants devolved to it and follow that lead rather than dictate it from the centre because that is the antithesis of devolution. Georgia? The first thing for me would be a long-term stable funding settlement. Steve? Yeah, I'd, um, I'd look at the Green Book again and change its methodology. Uh, I'll give an example. Maisie Tidal Power has the potential for generating enough energy for a million homes for 120 years. And yet Green Book says that we have to demonstrate its BCR in 45 years. So they're discluding a, a long part of the project. And I think it should be over the full project lifespan that you determine whether something is in, uh, investable or not. 
Mm. Oh, and Steve, I know you've got to go, but I just wanted to sneak this question because um, somebody did message me to ask you this question. Liverpool's just had Eurovision, huge success. Like, we oh, loved it. We loved it. There was an argument, like, should should you guys have been allowed to charge a bit of a tourist tax, for example, on, on people coming? Is that the sort of thing that somebody did ask me to ask you? Is that the kind of thing you would like to be able to do? Well, I actually asked the then Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport whether we could pilot it in the Liverpool City region, specifically around the two weeks around Eurovision. And I'm sorry that Scotland lost out on Eurovision and that we won. <laughs> it's all right. Not really at all. If I had to go somewhere but, um, else, we'll take Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we, we did it without a tourism tax. But if we had have got those bed nights with just a, a, a pound or two for those um, people who came in to to witness something that was genuinely off the scale, then we would have been left with a legacy of many millions of pounds that we could have reinvested into projects to attract people to continually come here. And and that's one of the short-sightedness reasons uh, of the national government why they decided not to provide us with the opportunity, which is really very disappointing to tell you the truth. We would love to see that in London and we've been arguing for an overnight levy that you can put on Airbnbs as as, as well as hotels. And you've done that. We're doing it, yeah. So the legislation's gone through. Edinburgh putting forward their case, or I think it's gone through, or it might be just going through. So, you know, Edinburgh, the big argument of festivals in the summer takes has a huge impact on public services in the city. You levy a pound or two a night, you make considerable amount of money that the city can reinvest in those services. And all local authorities will have the power to do that if they wish. Yeah, and no one's ever said I'm not going to go to Edinburgh because they're going to charge me a couple (laughs) of pounds extra per night or I'm not going to go to Liverpool. And the excuse that I was given by the minister was that, believe it or not, with no irony in her voice, she said it's because the Tories were the party of low taxation. (laughs) Well, it's nice to have ended our conversation on a note of consensus with a very good policy um, idea. Thank you so much um, to Liz, to Georgia and to Steve. That was a brilliant discussion. So I thought that was that was really interesting. We covered a lot of ground there. Um, you know Scotland a lot better than I do. Uh, what did you make of what Liz said about the sort of situation there that Labour haven't finalise the deal with the Scottish people yet, the SNP could still fight back and the sort of Labour aren't, aren't really presenting a good case yet in Scotland as opposed to in the rest of the country. I think there's a grain of truth in what she said. I think there will be a sizable chunk of people who did care about independence. They still do care about independence, but it's now not their absolute number one priority. And they look at the Conservative Party imploding and they look at the SNP party imploding and they sort of think, actually, it is time for a change. And Keir Starmer and Anna Sarwar are in a good position in the sense that they are kind of respectable, professional people. They're not like complete like puddings, like they're kind of... So I think they will scoop up a lot of people who feel like it's absolutely time for a change. Where it will probably be more difficult is there will be a hardcore group of people for whom independence is an absolute red line. 
they won't trust Scotland, uh, Labour in Scotland with more devolution. They always say, oh, Gordon Brown promised us the vow famously the night before uh, the, the Scottish referendum. I was working on part of the team, a, a huge scramble to get this sort of vow in front on the front page of the Daily Record. Many people that felt that played a huge role in averting Scottish independence. But many people feel that the vow was never quite delivered. I mean, I don't think that's quite true, but that's how that's perceived. So there is a truth in what she says, but it does feel like Labour's definitely going to do a lot better in Scotland than it's done for a long time. That doesn't mean that it's going to be a wipeout of the SNP. And I think sometimes the way we report on the SNP from London is really embarrassing. We either lionise the SNP or we catastrophise the SNP. It's probably somewhere in the middle. And also the thing in, in Scotland that people forget is they get two bites of the cherry. So if they're really, really pissed off with the Tories, which they are now, they can vote them out at the next general election but they can still vote the SNP in at the next set of Holyrood mm. elections. So th- I think the situation in Scotland is more nuanced, but you know, Labour is definitely doing a lot better than it's done there in a long, long time. Mm. And, and on England, I agreed with a lot of what Georgia and Steve both said. Um, I'm, a, I'm pretty pro-devolution. I, I agreed with what Georgia said at the end that, that you know, we've tried centralisation in working. We've got to try something different. But I, I do worry and I do still have the scepticism that you know, Starmer's team do seem already quite controlling and centralising. And when they start getting into rows with some of the mayors, when they start finding that they don't want to do the policies that fit with their sort of central strategy. It's all it's all going to go a bit wrong, and there's going to be a sort of pullback from that sort of current language at the moment around positivity towards devolution. I think the idea that they're just going to be like let a thousand flowers bloom in the nations and regions, I don't quite buy it, and I and I understand why. I think if you come in as the first majority Labour leader in a long time in a difficult set of circumstances you are going to be ruling the clan with an iron fist. Yeah. That's I mean, just I th- Rachel Reeves. No, yeah. I mean, I think I th- I, that, that is, that's my, my concern as well. I mean, I do think that the positive argument, the reason why it might happen more than it has in the past, I guess, is simply the financial situation. There's the questions you were asking there at the end. You know, there's no central money to spend. That Actually devolving stuff away, it means at least it's not your fault that you don't have to make the cuts, right? You can make someone else figure out how to save some money on these things. And actually, the councils have some good ideas as to how to do that. So you may get to the point where you think... I just can't take any more flack about the fact that we can't invest as much as we'd like in health or education. So let's let's push some of this away from us. I mean, funnily enough, it's one of those things where actual citizens, understandably, don't really care about this too much. They just want to get on with their everyday lives. They just want stuff lives. to work, right? Yeah, <laughs> they just want stuff to work. And I remember I used to hear an argument a lot from, from Labour voices saying devolution is about getting citizens involved in every aspect mm. of their local life. I'd push back and say, actually, no, citizens just want to elect some people and get them. That to- reminds me of Steve Hilton in 2009. <laughs> so big society. We want everyone, you know, we want parents running schools and, and running hospitals. We're just like, well, they don't want to run schools. They, they want, want well-run schools. They want well-run schools, but they don't want to be doing it themselves. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah you can go too far down, down that path. I think the big symbolic thing is going to be tax. Actually, we talked a bit about it, uh, whether it's a tourist tax or sort of more, more, even sort of local income tax, local consumption taxes. I think that's going to be the the thing which tells us whether Labour are really serious about this or and not. And do you think they will give away any of those tax raising uh, powers? No, but I'd love it to be yes. <laughs> I kind of agree with you. Uh, thanks for listening. 
So get in touch with your comments and your questions. And you can tweet us at The Paratest or uh, tweet Sam or I directly. And you can also email pod at theparatest.co.uk. I'm also on threads now. Are you on threads yet? (gasps) I am on threads, but I haven't done very much with it because I keep thinking about the nuclear film. That's what I keep thinking about and it's not a fun thought. I, I, I am on threads. I haven't figured out quite how to get rid of all the awful Instagram influences yet, which is my main <laughs> problem with it. Anyway, you can also become a, a founding member. Uh, membership gets you ad-free episodes before anyone else, an exclusive opportunity to become part of our community and even more benefits and bonuses. So head over to our Substack to look at your options. Sam, I think you are like a geek influencer. <laughs> yeah, but it's. But I haven't yet posed any pictures with some sort of like make makeup product. Well, uh, you do food stuff. You're it. more McDonald's than matcha, but yeah. I think that's good. The only pro- the only product I've ever been sent in a sort of influencer way was well, I mentioned the Wimpy. I love Wimpy Ooh. on on Twitter, and they sent me some special sauce. <laughs> Uh, two bottles of special sauce. That's the one thing I've got free from social Sam, media. I love it. So old school, wimpy. I love that. We used to have our parties at school. There was a wimpy down there. We'd have a party and someone'd have to dress up as a Mr. Wimpy. And they'd always get attacked by the local children in Glasgow, including myself. It was feral. We were feral beasts at that stage. Right. Well, look, next week will be the final episode in this current series. And we've got a special for you. We're heading to the Future of Britain conference where Keir Starmer will be delivering a big special speech will be there to assess where the Keir is passing the power test. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.